BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. On this show, we've talked to historians and inventors about technological innovations from self-driving cars, artificial intelligence, blockchain, and so on, that have changed society or that promise to. But Angus Fletcher thinks we're ignoring the most important one of all, literature. He's a professor of story science. How cool is that? (laughs) And he holds degrees in both neuroscience and literature. He's on faculty at Project Narrative at Ohio State. It's the world's leading academic think tank for the science of storytelling. And his latest book is called Wonderworks, and it tracks 25 literary inventions with distinct psychological benefits. Angus Fletcher, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted. So I want to start off by by first giving our listeners a sense of how you do your work. So as far as I know, you are the first or only professor I know of who's, who's like, job title is science of storytelling. So tell us about what, what, how do you do your work? How do you conduct your research? Like, what is the science of storytelling? Yeah, well, first of all, I hope that I I serve as an inspiration to everyone out there that just wants to invent their own discipline, because you can do it. I mean, I've done it. And you know, the truth is, at some point, somebody had to invent all these disciplines. So why not? Why not you? So yeah, no, I'm a professor of story science. And it is kind of wacky. Uh, because on the one hand, you know, when you start to think about it, it's completely intuitive. Story is just this enormously powerful thing. And of course, we would want to understand the science of it. We would want to understand how it works in our brains. And we would want then, once we understand how it works in our brains, to start thinking about it like an engineer or a scientist would. And and how can we empower ourselves? How can we use it? How can we refine it? So it's a completely intuitive idea, but it is very eccentric nowadays because literature is kind of broken off from sciences and engineering. So the short answer to what I do is I, is I do a lot of different work. Some of it is kind of like hardcore quantitative research, you know, putting in people in brain scanners while they read Hamlet, things like that. A lot of it is collaborative with um, psychologists, neuroscientists, doctors, other institutions. You know, we run, you know, large scale studies, you know, kind of classic kind of psychology studies, um, behavioral studies, that kind of stuff. Some of it is more qualitative. So I will do um, research in kind of lab settings that are more kind of creative lab settings where I work with artists and writers. I do a lot of work in Hollywood, places like that, but also, you know, with novelists, poets, and we do this kind of intensive, uh, that kind of intensive work. 
And then some of it is um, what is kind of traditionally referred to as natural history. So natural history is this amazing thing that, of course, Darwin did in the 19th century, where he just went around gathering up stuff. And then you kind of look at the history of how stuff was over time, and you say, hey, maybe I can kind of get some insight from just looking at, at the stuff. And that's kind of how all our museums of natural history come about in, in, on the West Coast, in the East Coast, in the Midwest, where I am. Just people went around gathering up fossils and, and whatnot and just looking at them. And so part of what I do is kind of like a paleontologist, only, only with stories. So that's kind of a big answer, but that's kind of because I'm the first guy in the field. And so I get to do a lot of stuff. In the future, probably everyone will have to be a little more restrained and have a little less fun than I'm having right now. I think it's so it's so great that that you are doing this. And, you know, I went to grad school in L.A. Uh, and I was surrounded by screenwriters because, uh, you know, I would say like 90 percent of the population in L.A. Uh, either has a screenplay or, <laughs> or is writing one. Um, and I always thought like, oh, this is just like something that people do and they just come up with an idea and they write a story and there isn't really a process behind it until I realized there's like a whole industry behind storytelling. Um, and so if you become a professional storyteller and of course, as a screenwriter, that's essentially what you're doing. There are all of these, you know, rules and, and ideas and theories of what works and what doesn't work. And it really does feel kind of scientific when you get down to it, which was really surprising to me. Well, I'm going to make a lot of enemies right now and tell you that I think that most of the science of storytelling in Hollywood is total bunk. And that's actually kind of why I went there. I mean, basically, if you talk to people in Hollywood... They have a few theories that they call science. It's really science in the Enlightenment sense of the 18th century science. You know, a lot of it's actually rooted in people like Carl Jung and these kind of like totally discredited archetypalists. So the classic example of this is the hero's journey. This kind of like um, very, uh, you know, weird dude, Joseph Campbell, wrote this book, you know, Here with a Thousand Faces, that basically said, you know, all the great stories are basically this kind of one spiritual cycle. And um, that has kind of become a, a kind of a dogma in Hollywood. And it's certainly true that, though, that that story, that the hero's journey can be very powerful. But, you know, the main thing that I believe is that if you look around with a scientist's eye at nature, is nature tells you diversity. It doesn't tell you unity. The idea that there's like one universal law that governs everything, this is this kind of like old rationalist idea that, that, that kind of, I mean, it was in the Middle Ages and then it emerged again in the 18th century. But now we know it's about variety, it's about diversity. And then we also look around our, our society now and our culture and it's like, aren't we tired of the same stories? And don't we realize that a lot of those stories aren't working? Like we go to Hollywood and we see the same movies over and over and over again. And we look in politics and it's the same stories over and over and over and over again. And, you know, and it's like, isn't it time for a change? Isn't it time to make new stories, break new ground? I mean, this is the power of the human mind is to create new narratives, to change the future by, by, by storytelling. And um, without rambling on too long, I mean, basically, because of that science background, I got very interested in Pixar. I used to teach at Stanford. That was kind of my first job out of grad school. And I made a bunch of connections at Pixar, and they had a, a theory at the time, which has since been dismantled by Disney, about how to innovate story. And it came from the kind of culture that Steve Jobs had created. He was the founder of Pixar. And the same way that he basically broke ground with the iPhone, Pixar was breaking ground with Up and Toy Story and Incredibles, all those just amazing movies. And I was like, oh my goodness, there's a different way to do this, a way that is actually about innovation, about diversity, about all these things that we associate with modern science. And that's kind of how I went to Hollywood. I, I left Stanford. I, I, like you, went to LA, lived in LA, love LA, my favorite city, honestly, even though it's totally weird and, and totally nuts, um, but can never get enough of Los Angeles. 
and um, you know, made a lot of friends in the screenwriting industry. I won something called the Nickel Award uh, for like best first screenplay from the Academy and have spent a lot of time working as a script consultant. And basically what I do is I, I'm the person who comes in and is like, let's not do a hero's journey. Let's do something different. Let's do something creative. And so that's kind of my, that's kind of my jam when it comes to Hollywood. Yeah. And I think that, you know, so like you, you have 25 literary devices that you go through in your book, uh, you know, so that's a lot more, obviously, a lot more diversity than the hero's journey. But I first want to just get one more definition out of the way. And I think that it's it'll help people kind of understand what it is you're talking about. I mean, sometimes we we conflate storytelling with with writing. And so when we talk about the history of of literature history, we think about the history of writing. And I think that what you're talking about in terms of storytelling is something more specific and not constrained by writing, but also not the same thing as just any writing, right? So can you just give us a sense of like, why, you know, like we can even start with um, the person that you suggest is the first literary inventor and Hudwana, um, and sort of just walk us through like, what is the difference between the invention of writing and the invention of literary or storytelling or whatever other term you want to use there. Yeah, no, this is brilliant. And I'm so excited you picked up on this because absolutely. And maybe, I mean, maybe I could just start by saying that we're all taught to equate literature with writing because when we go to school to learn about literature, we're taught to analyze words. We're taught that literature is words and we're taught to do something called close reading. And we spend all this time studying words and talking about words and confusing literature with words. And what I lay out in the book is there's a completely different way to read literature, to think of it not being about words at all, just to think that words are just the medium. And you can express literature through any medium you want. You could express it through dance. You can express it through a kind of mixed media like opera. You could express it um, uh, uh, you know, through visual images like in graphic novels. So words are just the medium. And if you get focused on them, you just don't understand what's going on. It'd be like if you thought a car was just steel and you spent all your time just studying steel molecules. You would never understand how a car actually works. And so what I'm interested in is what's beneath the words. And this can start to sound like very kind of like weird and mystically because it's like, well, the words are there on the page and what could possibly be beneath them? But again, it starts with the brain. What is our brain interested in? Well, first of all, our brain is interested in other people. That's one of the things that our brain is completely fascinated by. That's why we're always, you know, reading gossip mags and staring at other people on the street and doing all these kinds of things. Therefore, naturally, one of the main things we go to in literature is characters. Our brain does not see words. Our brain sees characters. When you read a book, you're not thinking about the words. You're thinking about the characters. You're thinking about the things the characters are saying, but you're thinking about other people. Well, what's another thing that our brain is interested in? Things that happen, actions, events. So what's another thing that literature is about? Plots. What else is our brain interested in? Environments. You know, we come from a kind of lineage of, of, of kind of like, you know, explorer species that were wandering around the globe and always kind of having to find new habitats. And that's why when you read a, a, a piece of literature, it takes you into another world. You immediately feel transported. And that's, of course, obviously the case with a fantasy or science fiction novel. But even if you just read Charles Dickens or Jane Austen or Homer um, or Sappho, you feel you've moved into another world. And so those are the kinds of things that I say are important about story because we get them not by looking at the book, but by looking at ourselves, by looking at our own brain, by looking at what our brain is interested in. And by looking at what our brain is interested in, we realize why these things were created in the first place. And so instead of making mis the mistake of thinking that they are words, we realize 
that there are attempts to stimulate these natural neural processes, like thinking about people, thinking about places, thinking about events. So that's the basic big break that I make with contemporary liter literary criticism, is I say, let's start not with what's on the page, but what's in, what's in our brain. And then once you do that, then you start to say, okay, well, in addition to like characters and events and, and all this kind of stuff, what else do we get from literature? Well, first of all, we get just so many extraordinary things. Everyone has read a book and had a crush on a character or cared about a character. So we get love, we get empathy, you know, we get curiosity, you know, we're fascinated, we're hooked, we, 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 we page turn, you know. Um, we also get healing from literature. I mean, how many times have, 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 have we turned because we're lonely or sad um, to literature? And it can make us feel better. I mean, this is one of the origins of ancient tragedy. I mean, literature can even alleviate certain types of trauma. I mean, there's plenty of evidence for that. And then, you know, we also go to literature for creativity, to become more imaginative. Literature can actually make you more creative. And there's a whole genre of literature and, you know, all these inventions I talk about in the book that are specifically designed just to make us more creative. And that's found in a lot of children's literature, not accidentally, because the great thing about children's literature is, you know, that's the one time in our lives where we're really encouraged to go wild with our imagination. So, I mean, that's the kind of the big difference there uh, between how we're taught and kind of like what you're saying, writing is about words. And I'm saying that literature is actually about the brain. <laughs> and, and, we, and we start with the brain and think about how these inventions in literature stimulate the brain. And as far as the beginning of your question about Enheduanna, I mean, one of the things I, I just had to say, one of the things I learned writing this book, which I didn't know, is that the first author we know is a woman, which is kind of an extraordinary fun detail. And, you know, she, and one of the things I'll say in general about literature and innovations in general is they usually come from the margins. They usually come from people who aren't really at the center of power. And that's because literature is itself a way of empowering you. It's a way of grabbing power. And the remarkable thing about Enheduanna is she discovered this way to mobilize poetry to essentially make herself into almost a kind of God or a person who could connect uh, or, or could claim to connect anyway, the people who followed her with the gods. And so again, this is this example of literature being used in myth-making to generate a worldly effect on people's brains, as opposed to a group of words to be interpreted. So let's start with how did she do that? Like what, what was her invention that was so new? So... The first thing that is exciting about her, we, we, have, we have these kind of scattered um, bits of her writing. But the first thing that's exciting about her is she says, I created something which had never before invented, been invented. So she comes right out in her poetry and says, I did something new. So the very first thing she does is invent the idea of an inventor. I mean, she's the first inventor. I mean, she comes out and says, I, you know, and that in itself is an extraordinary thing. It's claiming the power of creativity. And when you claim the power of creativity, you do a couple of remarkable things. Wait, wait, wait. We should set her in time, too, so people know when she, when she was. <laughs> I don't know if we've said yeah, that Yeah, so yet. we're basically talking about 20... It's, it's not entirely clear because there's some kind of, you know, but we're basically, we're basically talking uh, a little over 5,000 uh, years ago. Well before Socrates, you know, like well before. Oh yes, the oh yes, no, 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 yeah. we're <laughs> yes, no, we're we're <laughs> Just, way, we're way, we're way beyond. We're, yeah, we're way, we're way earlier than that. Um, we're earlier than the Bible. We're um, probably earlier than. Uh, I mean, this is basically like the earliest literature, and I should say, literature is a synonym for for um, scripture. The two mean exactly the same thing. So when we're talking about the origins of literature, we're really talking about the the origins of of most of what we think of as our holiest texts. And so what she wrote were basically hymns, which were sung in Ur. 
and uh, around, you know, sort of um, 2300 BCE or something like that. So I guess uh, less than 5,000 years ago, a little over 4,000 years ago, to correct my math. Um, so um, what the power of creativity does is, first of all, it allows you to claim that you're a god. I mean, I mean, this was this was the kind of the signal most exciting thing. I mean, you know, I mean, um, this is of course before we figured out, as we have in our infinite wisdom, you know, um, uh, the origins of the universe, and we know everything now. But back in those primitive days, people didn't know where the universe came from. They assumed that someone must have created it. And so, if you could say, "Hey, I have that same power. I can create things," that in itself was just an extraordinary thing. That was a kind of divine act. But then beyond that, it's also so empowering because it's like, well, I can create new things. I'm not just, I mean, to be a god is to be able to make the future. And she does that relentlessly. She innovates myth. She innovates legend. She is sort of changing the story. And this is something, again, we're not really taught in school that much. I mean, we go, we often learn the Greek myths. And the way we learn the Greek myths is we're often told, oh, these are the myths. But every generation of Greek authors changed the myths. And so on a very basic level, what you're just seeing with her is this power of literature to create, to make to generate, and that's kind of where it starts. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, so we start out with that origin story. <laughs> um, and then I wanted to kind of jump a little bit further um, into something that I, I feel was really interesting, how you connected sort of Greek playwrights with something very much more contemporary, Alison Bechdel. Um, so you were taught, you were basically were talking about literature's power to help us heal from trauma. Um, and so tell us about these two inventions, you know, the, the, what, what happened in Greece and then what Alison Bechdel did more recently. Yeah, and this, to me, is one of the most fascinating things that I found working on this book, because it starts with the discovery, which I didn't know, that we think there are two different types of PTSD. And, you know, I, had, I, have, uh, I have a lot of friends in the military, and, you know, and, um, and I, you know, was aware of what we think of as kind of traditional PTSD. 
But it turns out that there are these two kinds and they originate in this kind of opposite neural mechanism. So basically the simple way to think about it is that at the center of our brain, there is this powerful ancient emotional hub, which is responsible for generating fear, but also love and joy. And at the front of our brain, in our prefrontal cortex, there's kind of a break, a kind of stopper that, that, that slows down that emotion and tamps it down. And, and, and so in most of us, when we feel something scary, we might feel a jolt of fear, but then there's that calm that comes in from the break and the kind of tapping the brakes and, and kind of, you know, relax, relax the brake. Well, what happens in um, type one PTSD is that break fails. It fails. And so what ends up happening is you start having uncontrolled emotion. You can have flashbacks. Um, you can have extreme anxiety. You can have all these kinds of terrible uh, knock-on effects where you just can't control your feelings. But there's another type of PTSD that is typical, not as much among veterans, but more so among survivors of domestic abuse and chronic trauma. And what happens in those situations is not that the brake fails and stops working, but that it becomes too strong. And the way you can understand this is if you are someone who's in a situation of domestic abuse or some other kind of chronic trauma, is in order to survive, you have to keep going into a situation when you're, where you're afraid. And so what you do is you lock down on your emotions mentally. And you keep saying, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm going to repress this fear. And that strengthens the break and overstrengthens the break and actually leads to um, derealization, depersonalization, all these forms of dissociation where you stop feeling, you become numb, your life feels less real, your own you know, existence feels less real. There's a kind of like ghostly quality to things. And so because these two types of PTSD originate in different neural mechanisms, they require different types of therapy. One of them requires a strengthening of the break, you know, to kind of help calm your emotions down. But the other one requires an unlocking or unfreezing of the break, a releasing of the break. And the reason this is so important is because until the discovery of the second type of PTSD, which was really only discovered about 20 years ago, everyone was treated with the same treatment, which was making the break stronger. And so you can imagine what would happen if you were a survivor of, of chronic trauma and you kept going into this therapy, which is actually kind of increasing your problem, you know, it was making it worse and worse and worse. So anyway, so this is something that psychiatrists have discovered in the last 20 years. But what's amazing, what I point out in the book is authors realized it first. And there's actually two separate treatments for uh, PTSD, one for each kind that we find in the history of literature. The first is developed by the Greeks. And it was uh, largely, we think, associated with battlefield trauma. Um, the way that, you know, um, the way that kind of ancient Greek theater worked is it was basically open, free to all citizens, which is to say mem men, <laughs> men who own property, basically. Um, but men who own property, uh, so uh, were the ones who fought. They were the ones who fought in battles. And Greek tragedy contains all these inventions, which we can go through if you like, for basically stimulating various types of things like exposure therapy, um, EMDR, and, other, and, and self-efficacy boosting, which are all designed to kind of help you through that first type of, of PTSD. But then Alison Bechdel comes along, and she writes this glorious, gorgeous, brilliant, inventive memoir called Fun Home, in which she chronicles her own experiences as a survivor of domestic abuse. And that gives us the second type of treatment. And it turns out that the second type of treatment, because it's about unlocking the break, is about giving us positive feelings and teaching us to trust our feelings and telling our brain that actually feeling isn't always bad. There can be joy, 
there can be gratitude, there can be love and helping kind of unfreeze those circuits. And so what um, Bechdel's memoir does is it contains all these ingenious narrative devices for surprising us into gratitude and surviving us into joy, uh, surprising us into joy and empathy. And you can feel that therapeutic effect. So that to me is just a kind of, the kind of mini thing there is both how diverse literature can be, you know, that it can go in both these directions and also how much possibility there still is for innovation. We think a lot of times we're taught that there's this thing called great literature. And that sort of implies that somehow all the really good writing is in the past. But to me, the fact that Ellison Bechdel could come along and just change everything shows you, well, what else is there? What other room for innovation is there in literature? So that gets me to um, the second major thing I wanted to talk about, um, which is creativity. And, you know, I can understand how how literature, how great stories can help us build imagination and empathy as we put ourselves into the shoes of the characters, um, as we learn a different person's perspective, as we essentially are forced to imagine but have some nice uh, crutches in the descriptions that the authors are providing for us of this, like, imaginary world. Um, and that all makes sense to me. But the the sort of way in which you approach creativity by starting with Dr. Seuss and, um, you know, just kind of what's, what's happening in children's literature was really new, and I hadn't really thought of that before. Um, so can you sort of walk us through the ways in which uh, uh, I guess, literature, literary devices in particular, those ones that we find in a lot of children's books, um, help us develop creativity. Absolutely. And I want to say that, um, first of all, there's many different ways to stimulate creativity. And if I had been allowed by my publishers to write a book that was the 500 greatest inventions in the history of literature, I would have done that. Um, but I, I went with what I think is the biggest and, and kind of most obvious stimulus uh, to creativity. And that just starts with the discovery of this remarkable part of our brain called the default mode network. And the default mode network is this part of our brain. It was really discovered completely by accident uh, during kind of early neuroimaging work, brain scanning work, where um, the researchers kept telling people in these brain scanners to relax and stop thinking. And the moment people relax and stop thinking, this huge network just went active in the middle of their brains. The researchers were like, no, 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 stop that. Stop whatever you're doing. And the people in the brain scanners are like, I am not doing anything. And it turns out that our brain has this remarkable, wonderful, huge, giant network that goes active whenever we're not actively thinking, or in other words, working. When our brain isn't actively working, it goes into this other mode. And what's the opposite of work? It's play. It's play, our brain plays. And the default mode network is this kind of like wonderful randomness, arbitrary machine in the center of our head that just spits out um, lovely, delicious, uh, unexpected surprises. And the, the sort of technical term for this is, is, uh, is mind wandering, uh, which is something that most of us experience quite a bit during the day. I used to experience it all the time in school. You know, you're sitting there, you're supposed to be paying attention. And instead, you're just daydreaming and your mind is drifting and you're having adventures and you're doing stuff. And that's the default mode network going active. And um, its operation is still largely very mysterious. Uh, and I don't want to pretend that, that, that uh, you know, we know more about it than we do. But what we do know about it is that it involves a kind of interplay between anarchy and structure. So it's not kind of pure randomness, 
it kind of plays with stuff and kind of tweaks them. I mean, a, a good way to think about it is improv and music or jazz or something where you're constantly riffing or playing. Um, or again, improv and theater. Uh, if any of you have had kind of the fun, I mean, this is a, a big LA thing to go kind of uh, uh, <laughs> go spend a night at the improv um, and just kind of play and mess around. It, it's not totally unstructured. Uh, it, you know, it, it relies on certain types of narrative elements and, and whatnot, but there is a lot of randomness in there. So anyway, it turns out that, uh, of course, um, literature contains a lot of wonderful magical uh, uh, technologies for stimulating the default mode network. And the earliest ones that I talk about in the book, we think were probably developed by, by nursing mothers. And they are the nursery rhymes, like Hey Diddle Diddle, The Cat and the Fiddle. And what these nursery rhymes do is they have an interplay of what you might think of as, as structure and nonsense. So the structure is this kind of musical structure, which is regular, has a kind of syncopated beat, a rhyme, rhythm to it. And what that's important is that kind of relaxes your brain and tells you, okay, we don't need to panic. We're not, if your brain senses that you're literally in a place of total anarchy, it actually freaks out because that suggests that something dangerous can happen and the kind of fear regions of your brain go active. And so to really play and relax, you have to have the sense that you're in a sandbox, that the outside, you know, that there are these kinds of walls and boundaries within which it's safe to just mess around. So the metrical structure, the rhythm gives us that sense of stability, but then within it, you just have all these kooky things. Um, so in the Hey Diddle Diddle rhyme, we have this cat who's mysteriously with a fiddle. We have a cat that jumps over the moon for no apparent reason. Um, we have dishes and knives just deciding to elope and run away. Um, and that kind of interplay between the two elements, between the, the, the musical structure and the narrative anarchy is incredibly generative. It just makes our default network go live. And then from there, that basic interplay between uh, structure and anarchy is just picked up by all this children's literature running through Lewis Carroll and Alice in Wonderland through Winnie the Pooh, which I talk about, and finally ending up with Dr. Seuss. And Dr. Seuss is a classic example of this. So musical, but also so narratively nutty. Um, and you just feel like anything can happen in the story while at the same time you feel that there is this kind of regularity, this musicality. I mean, I hope people have had the chance to read Dr. Seuss out loud, maybe to a child or maybe just to yourself when no one's looking. And it just pops all those music centers of your brain. So that's a kind of simple way in which um, uh, literature activates this part of our brain which itself is the, the, the engine of, of creativity. And, the, and people often say, well, why is it that our brain does this? Well, the simple answer for that is that you just never know what's coming in life. And so it's always good to have a storehouse of creative ideas. And our brains have learned that, that it's important when we're not working to play, because that play in the future could be the thing that saves our lives or that generates this thing that allows us to kind of realize our dreams. So to our brains, because of the instability of life, biologically speaking, play is just about as important as work. Another example of that was like the only poem that I ever managed to memorize in my life, uh, which was Alfred Prufrock's Jabberwocky, which is uh, very similar. Uh, it's sort of like Dr. Seuss, but maybe more for adults. <laughs> but it has that same kind of play on words and it kind of makes sense and it's exciting because it all seems to make sense. And yet it's total, you know, Jabberwock. <laughs> it's just total gibberish. So I want to remind our listeners that Angus's book, Wonderworks, The 25 Most Powerful Inventions in the History of Literature, is now available at booksellers everywhere. And now I want to turn to sort of the dark side of um, a lot of these things that you're talking about, which is this, that we seem to have lost our 
love or passion or what have you, that, that literature has lost its power in our modern day. And maybe that's because of the you know rise of of internet technologies or social media or what have you. But I wanna I wanted you to sort of tell us about why literature just seems to have taken a back seat in a lot of ways and and why we should care about that. Yeah, well, the reason we should care about it is because honestly, literature is the most powerful technology we've ever invented, not just in terms of our past, but in terms of our present and our future. And as I say that, I know that probably sounds wacky to some of your liter- uh, your listeners. Like, I mean, how can, how can literature possibly be more powerful than, than my smartphone? Or how could it possibly be more powerful than computers and, uh, and artificial intelligence and spaceships and all that kind of stuff? Well, the simple answer for that is because literature was and remains our best technology for getting the most out of our own brains. Um, first of all, just on a basic level for troubleshooting our brains, for helping us get through grief, loneliness, anxiety, kind of helping us alleviate trauma, move through those things. But then also maximizing um, our optimism, maximizing our joy, maximizing our well-being, maximizing our creativity, even maximizing our problem-solving power. I mean, there's a bunch of technologies I talk about in the book that just help you become a better problem solver. So just in a very practical way, um, if you want to be the most creative engineer, you should read a little literature. You know, if you want to be the happiest, most thriving doctor, you should read a little literature. If you want to be uh, a physicist who who spends less time worrying and more time doing physics, you should do a little literature. So literature really is the bedrock of all these other things. It helps us be our best selves. It's what, you know, allows our humanity to flourish. So that's why it's so important that we recover it. And I think a lot of us are feeling nowadays the loss of a lot of those qualities. We're feeling a loss of mental health, a loss of mental well-being, a loss of creativity. There's a lot of burnout. There's a lot of exhaustion. And literature is a cheap and infinitely renewable resource for helping us deal with all of those things. There's always enough books and there's always enough in books. You just never run out. If you need your book, it's there for you, you know, on the shelf. That poetry is there for you. So so part of what I just really want to kind of proselytize is just how important, how powerful, how wonderful this technology is um, and how available it is. Um, It's just what it can give us is just endless. So that's why I think it's important. As to why we're in this state of affairs, I don't want to blame science and technology. Because I think, honestly, what science and technology has been doing is extraordinary. And, you know, scientists and, and engineers are being innovative. They're being caring. They're problem solving. They're looking around and saying, you know, what are the problems um, that people face? And how do we solve them? And if there's a problem with science and, 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 and engineering, it's because we, the people, are telling them to solve the wrong problems. You know, maybe we're not asking them to save the real to solve the real problems. We're instead, you know, focused on uh, on you know giving us a faster iPhone, maybe as opposed to doing other things. You know, so I don't think the problem lies with science and technology, and I'm not here to bash science and technology. I mean, I come out of science, and the book itself is made possible by science and technology. Um, I am going to make more friends, however, by saying that I think the problem largely lies with the way that literature is taught nowadays. And again, this isn't because the people teaching literature are are nefarious, but it's simply because of this focus on interpreting words. When you focus on interpreting words, what you do, the kind of deep method there is known as symbolic logic. And it was the dominant way of scholarship in the Middle Ages. And it's the way that in the Middle Ages, if you were a cleric, you would interpret the Bible. 
And so what we're essentially doing now is we're teaching generations of students to treat literature the way that the Bible was treated in the Middle Ages. I mean, that's the core of what symbolic logic and interpretation are doing. And whatever the value of that might be, it's not helping us unlock all these other effects. And so really my message here is not so much to kind of like blame and attack, you know, um, although I will confess that, you know, my, my training is in the Renaissance. And so I do, I, do, I, do always, I do always perhaps present a less than full and complete picture of the Middle Ages. And you should probably get someone on here to talk more about the positive side of the Middle Ages. But regardless, my focus is less to attack than to say there is an opportunity here. It's not that we need to kind of like go and tear things down, but let's realize that because of the way we're reading now, we're missing out on this huge potential, these enormous psychological benefits, this healing, this well-being, this creativity, this intellectual and personal growth that we can get from literature, um, and that all the wonderful stuff we've done in science and technology can be supercharged with literature. And maybe we can start if we develop more empathy and more curiosity and more love and more personal, but more of these qualities we get from literature, maybe we can start to apply science and technology even more powerfully. Maybe we can become a more ethical scientific and engineering community. Maybe we can find that other part of ourselves, the part that isn't just a problem solver, but that is focused on problem, on solving the problems that really matter. So that's kind of really why I think um, it's important and also why I think that, uh, that we have kind of lost a handle of this just enormous potential in literature. And I just want to clarify that what you're not saying that we should read more novels simply for entertainment. I think that that's an important point that you make is that a lot of times now when we turn to literature, it seems to be just to kind of, you know, shut off or, or reduce boredom. What you're saying is that we should actually be using it more strategically for some of these other functions. Yeah, well, I mean, part of the I mean, you know, so first of all, I'm not here to deny people entertainment and fun. And if you want to escape into a novel, I'm not here to tell you not to do that any more than I'm here to tell you not to eat chocolate, you know, for breakfast. If you want to eat chocolate for breakfast, that's totally legit. If you want to read a novel and escape into a fantasy world or watch a Disney movie, that's totally legit. The problem is when you're only eating chocolate all the time and you don't realize that, that, that actually there's a lot of other stuff out there that can grow your body and grow your mind. And, um, and that over time, the more you kind of get these psychological benefits out of literature, the more it strengthens you, and actually the more fun you can have in the long run, um, the more joy you can have and support in the long run. And you know, so for me, essentially, what I think is that all of us in different ways have different things that we know we would benefit from having more of in our lives. Maybe we would uh, benefit from having more courage. There's a literary technology for that. Um, you know, you can find it in Homer. Maybe we would benefit from having more love. You can find that. That's in Sappho. Maybe you benefit from more empathy, more, create, more creativity, um, more curiosity. Um, there's just all these benefits that you can get from literature. And so that isn't to say that you can't have fun, but I do think that what has happened is that as science and technology have claimed the practical, as, as, as you know, scientists and engineers have said, we do what's practical, literature has been jammed up. And it's like, well, if we don't do the practical, what do we do? And then what literary scholars have, have done as well, what we do is, you know, this incredibly abstruse theoretical thing, which is impractical. And then the flip side of that is the general public has said, well, you know, what we do in literature is just fun. And what I'm trying to say is, no, actually, those are both possible. And I don't want to stop either of those from happening. But there's this huge middle ground of just practical stuff. It's like things that just would make our lives better and maybe more importantly, the lives of the people around us better. 
you know, because the stronger we become, the more capacity we have for empathy and self-support, the more we can nurture and grow the people in our lives that we care about. So it's a gift to ourselves, but also to our community. Well, Angus Fletcher, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much for having me. It was a delight. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Cheng, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rahala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer Ewald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indravis. See you next week. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.